Hi, you are listening to the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. This podcast is for policymakers, governments, researchers, students, businesses, and anyone that is interested in conflict and development issues in Africa. On this podcast, we hear from experts from across Africa and the world. Your host, Dr. Michael Wangpa, will ask the questions you would want answers to. Michael Wangpa has an extensive experience spanning over a decade studying, researching, writing and consulting on conflict and development issues in Africa. Welcome to another episode of the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. I'm your host, um, Dr. Michael Wampa. Today, we're going to be exploring an important subject, uh, looking at uh, Liberia's uh, post-conflict situation, looking at the progress it's made so far uh, in its political history. Uh, today, I am joined by a special guest, uh, Dr. Kristen Cheng. Uh, Dr. Cheng is a senior lecturer uh, at the World Department at King's College, um, London. She is the author of the award-winning book, Extra-Legal Groups in Post-Conflict Liberia, How Trade Makes the State, and also author of several other books, uh, including Securing and Sustaining uh, Elite Bargains uh, That Reduce Violent Conflict. Uh, Dr. Cheng also... Um, has worked uh, with several international organizations, including the United Nations and the World Bank. And she regularly comments on um, several uh, uh, media outlets, including BBC, Al Jazeera, and Wall Street Journal. Uh, Christine, I'm very, very delighted to have you today. Uh, and I look forward to an interesting uh, conversation. Me too. It's really nice to be here with you, Michael. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to start off uh, by asking you, in, in the last um, uh, 40 years or 40-something years, we, we've seen uh, Liberia, uh, a country of like five, 5 million people, if I'm correct, uh, go through uh, from you know military coup to to two civil wars, and then we've seen also transition to the democratic state where we've seen two successive um, uh, democratic transition. So looking at that history of violence, uh, how much progress would you say Liberia has made so far from from you know that's from the seventies when when our talking is still now. I think Liberia has made a tremendous amount of progress and I think the country should be, be incredibly proud of how far it has come um, given, given its past and all of the difficulties of the civil wars um, and even emerging out of the civil wars. You know, there were some periods where it wasn't clear whether or not the country was going to go back to war. and. Um, Instead, it has come out the other end. It's had a number of elections now, all with with peaceful results from 2005 onwards until the very latest one now. And um, they have all been incredibly successful so with a little bit of controversy at different times, but not with the latest one and not with the previous one. And I think that's something that we should actually all be celebrating given how difficult things have been in West Africa with the recent spate of, of coups that have taken place. So you can't actually take a peaceful election in West Africa for granted um, anywhere in the region. And Liberia has come out the other side 
and everybody agrees that it was a very peaceful and uh, successful election. So an incredible amount to be proud of. Mm, amazing, amazing. Speaking, speaking of the elections and speaking of how uh, relate, it has been relatively uh, been you know free, uh, fair and transparent. And then looking at connecting or relating that to elections in in other African countries and how you know we've experienced violence and, and and so would we on one hand would you say Liberia offers uh some sort of hope to what I call liberal form of democracy and and elections? And on the other hand, what is it that has changed? Because in the past, from the 80s before 2005, you know, the Tosipo power struggle in Liberia, you know, was one of the reasons why they had, you know, the civil wars in the first instance. So what has changed? You, you did talk about, in your other book, you talk about elite bargains. Does that play a role in the shifts in Liberia? And does Liberia, how does Liberia offers um, a sort of a, like an example or something that other African, West African countries can look up to in terms of elections? Well, I mean, this is a complicated question with a complicated answer, but I would say that, um, you know, there are some things that have made Liberia's situation maybe a little bit more resilient to what has happened. Um, and I can point to a few of these things, but um, you know, I wouldn't say that everybody that it's 100% clear why Liberia is doing better than some other countries when it comes to um, dealing with unrest and unhappiness in the population. And I would say, largely in the places where you have had coups, you know, the situation, the day-to-day -day situation is is pretty bad. And that's the number one driver of when you you end up with political instability, right? It it, yeah. it is often speaking to a situation where um, it's not just about the elite; it's also often about the people. There is a reflection of of the country not working, right? You don't yeah. tend to. This is very rare, much more rare, where things are working very, very well and everything's going well. You don't tend mm. to see coups in African countries where everything is going well. You tend to see them mm. where things are going badly. So, mm. um, so thinking about those ground conditions is, I think, generally important. Um, it's not that things have been going super well in Liberia either, though, right? So um, that's not unusual. And of course, Liberia itself has had a history of very uncertain uh, political forces, including its own coup um, back mm. with Samuel Doe when he took over in 1980 um, and kicking out a very, very long tradition of um, the Whig Party being in power and um, changing over from um, Congo slash American rule. But, you know, then there was all of the violence that followed. And then out of that, there was a long period where there was an international presence. There was also a lot of attention paid to Liberia. So even though, hmm. even after the peacekeepers left, there are a lot of eyes on Liberia, right? And I think having eyes on a country where some people care, right? Having people from the outside world actually care and pay attention, that also gives you some protection um, and the economy was doing relatively well for a period in West Africa, or sorry, in, in Liberia from, I would say, 2005. Even last year in Liberia, they say economic growth was about 5%. Um, so, mm. you know, there's there's all of that, but there's still a lot of grinding poverty with um, people living below $2 a day on average. I mean, that's... I don't think that those estimates are necessarily entirely accurate because it doesn't account for all sorts of informal activity uh, in the economy. But having said that, it's still an incredibly poor country. You know, you just leave Monrovia and you see the poverty everywhere um, and how hard it is. So you get those kinds of conditions and then you think, well, how do people express their anger? 
And there are lots of mm -hmm. different ways to do that. One is, you know, through the voting box and with your ballot. And if you feel like if you feel like that ballot is actually going to change something in your life and actually that when you vote, it's not going to be just tossed away and whoever is designated to win is going to win anyway. And you can mm. use the ballot box, right? Do you think that you can trust mm. your system so that if mm. the person that you want to win is actually going to be allowed to win, then you mm. will be more likely to trust that system if you think that the election is going to be rigged and that it doesn't matter what you do at the ballot box that the person mm. who is designated to win and the system is so corrupt that there's no point in trying then you mm. think okay i can't do it through nonviolent means maybe i can protest mm. in the streets if i can't mm. do that either if it's say being shut down or you feel like it's too dangerous to do that then you know, then other people start, you get this unrest in the country. And then the question mm. is, what do you do with that unrest, right? So in some cases, you know, you see a social movement coming and taking over in a place like Sudan and the military, mm. you know, al-Bashir is kicked out and the military junta, the regime there is, is kicked out as well. And then you see a back and forth over the years. Um, and in Sudan, sadly, you know, the militaries come back, right? Um, mm -hmm. And in other cases, you see the military itself saying, okay, this is not acceptable. These people are corrupt. And then they do what they do and they think they might do a better job or maybe it is a power grab. But the, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that question that you ask is a really good one, right? Why are some places more protected? How do you quote unquote mm -hmm. coup proof a country that mm -hmm. might be more mm -hmm. susceptible? Mm -hmm. um, and I think mm. part of that has to do with the economy. Part of that has to do with the outside world caring. Um, it used to also be another important factor was that in Africa, there was a rule, a general sort of rule that you wouldn't let the leaders come to the big meetings with the African mm. Union and ECOWAS and so forth if um, they had taken control by coups. And mm. now that seems like you know, that norm has changed. Mm. There are so many countries that have gone through these coups. And so you see this norm shifting, right? So mm. um, people are not taking as hard a line on it anymore. Mm. You can see just mm. within what ECOWAS, um, mm. the economic community of West African states, that mm. the response from other presidential leaders has has been different, right? They they There was... Mm talk of uh, Nigeria being more active when the coup in Niger happened and then all of a sudden you know everybody pulled back from that so mm. you see this kind of people are more wary of getting involved mm. now um, and that makes mm. it then again more okay if you're thinking about um, taking over a country from the military side you think oh mm. You know, they didn't do anything about it in these other places. Yeah. And so you're emboldened, yeah. right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Um, you, you, you've mentioned quite a number of things there. Um, when you mentioned Niger and other countries, like in, in the Francophone countries that are experiencing coup now, and then you look at um, uh, ECOWAS and ECOWAS' uh, inability to, uh, despite setting uh, several if I would call it red lines, and then you know didn't have, uh, couldn't do anything. But in the nineties, surprisingly, when Liberia was going through some of the civil, we had uh, ECOMOC, the the ECOWAS uh, military were able to, you know, intervened in 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 Liberia in Sierra Leone. Uh, why why has ECOWAS ECOMOC, why has, have they lost that uh, ability or power or that? that call it moral ground i don't know if i was going to call it a moral uh, case to be able to because in the in niger one of the arguments was uh looking coming off the back of nigeria's uh troubled election itself and, and the issue of legitimacy on, on the president itself but the people are like you don't have the moral ground to 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 do this so what has that changed you know, in the in in Liberia, able to what has changed you know this is a, a bit outside of liberia but looking at how 
these cases can also incentivize you know other countries to do the same what, what has changed from the 90s oh you're asking tough tough questions here <laughs> um and i think well you're asking questions like with with really i think complicated backstories right so um mm. you know if you look back to why nigeria was able to play such a powerful role in the case of both Sierra Leone and um, in Liberia with ECOMOG. So this is the economic community of West African states and then shortened to the monitoring group bit of it, which mm -hmm. effectively wasn't just monitoring, it came in mm -hmm. and acted, I would say actually as a party to the conflict in a lot of cases, right? So they were in theory supposed to be peacekeeping, but in order mm -hmm. to be doing this kind of peacekeeping, they had to be um, offensive at times as much as, as defensive, and they ended up embroiled mm -hmm. in, in the conflict uh themselves and that complicated things right with a variety mm -hmm. mostly nigerians right but with a little belt bit of help from gambia a little bit of help from ghana and so forth right? so mm -hmm. but mostly it mm -hmm. was nigerian troops who were on the ground mm -hmm. and active there and you're asking you know why was liberia or sorry why would it go in when we're willing to go in i think there were in liberia's case certainly there was a personal um relationship that that was going on there and a personal animosity as well so the personal relationship was with doe um between um you know the president at the time and then nigerian president and and samuel doe and then there was a personal animosity that uh was between um the nigerian president and charles taylor at the time and that was because and this is super fascinating um <laughs> it was because during the coup in um it was during the coup and doe was not willing to save um daisy de la foss who was the daughter-in-law oh no sorry maybe i'm thinking about in cote d'ivoire i'm thinking about in cote d'ivoire mm -hmm. why yeah, why people were willing to intervene in that particular case so i'm mixing things up right now um but all that to say that you know there was there's often a history between you know the the states here and how they are are dealing with each other um and the relationships are are quite personal um mm -hmm. and so some of that comes into play when thinking about whether or not to intervene right and mm -hmm. there are still personal relationships now but the whole tenor of whether or not it's okay to intervene think about how we felt about intervention um right after and this would have been just very shortly after the gulf war so this is mm -hmm. the early 1990s and also how people felt about democracy at the time right mm -hmm. that um mm -hmm. You know, people had hope that if we could preserve democracy um then and and the hope for a future democracy in a place like mm. Liberia that you can't just have these coups take place right so mm. Mm. that i think also changed the dynamic of of what was happening um so you get mm. you get the kind of geopolitical conditions and now you think about what's going on now and how many mm -hmm. failed interventions there have been around the mm -hmm. world. And I'm sure that Nigeria is looking at the situation and thinking, do I really want to get involved again? Because don't forget, mm -hmm. you know, when they did get involved in the 1990s in Liberia, um, they were sort of burned by that, right? That, that yeah. there was this whole period where lots and lots of Nigerian soldiers were being killed in this mission. And it was mm. a really bloody battle. I don't know that Nigerian, the Nigerian population would be willing, you know, to, to, to suffer that again. Mm. Right. So from the kind of domestic constituency side, maybe there is actually, you know, 
more more democratic accountability within Nigeria. And so the president is paying more attention to um, how the people feel. Whereas I think, mm. um, you know, back in the 1990s, it, they might not have needed to do that in the same way. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> This is, it's it's quite interesting because yeah it's quite interesting change in time right different change yeah I, I agree with you I, I, one of the things you've not mentioned that I think you're looking to mention you mentioned it, it kind of like you know very it's it's that notion of or the the idea of or the way democracy was perceived at the time and it I think it was at the back back end of um, the end of the Cold War and then you know there was you know this new this third wave of democratization. And, and then there was this rush to like, you know, spread liberal democracy and all of that. But I, I think what's happening now uh, is also over that period of maybe 30 years in the continent, you've seen a dissolutionment with, with democracy. Democracy hasn't yielded, you know, that much democracy, that, that much dividend, which again, you then look at it in terms of, um, um, uh, state building looking at the, the the political culture of african continent itself how how the state is being built and I, i'm going to take you to to what you said in your book when you were looking at how you were challenging our construction of um, non-state actors seeing them as a national threat so you're, you're kind of like reimagining them as um uh you call them accidental state builders in an evolutionary state, you know, making process rather than simply as a, a national threat. So I, I wanted you to expatiate on this and see how how there could be behind all of these conflicts we have. There could be a genuine um, or legitimate way against you know the failure of democracy, which some people can you know capitalize on and exploit. But there is that legitimacy to expand on that on that notion on that reimagination of non-state um, conflict groups, and especially in in Liberia as well. Um, so you want me to comment on on thinking about yeah. these non-state groups as as potential state builders? Yes, yes, yes. Because it could be so it could be a case of um. So I'm thinking about oh, so if, the, if you need to look. Go on. No, no, go on, go on, go on. Yeah, because you did, you did make a difference. So I wanted to. That was going to be my next question, but it kind of ties in as well. You did make a difference between uh, warlords from extra legal groups and from mafias, and you know all of these concepts, you know. But, but I wanted to. I know you made that distinction. You made that, you know. But but at times it's not very clear to people what those differences are. How do you differentiate? Between a warlord and an extra legal group, you know, and, and are you are you in a way excusing the the violence they might have you know committed in the past and say you know you know you know that's just for the sake of you know state building should we just you know not look at what they've done? Um. So I th I think about what I call those extra legal groups. And really in the case of Liberia, I was thinking about the ex-combatant groups that sometimes were made up largely of, of one armed group or one bit of Charles Taylor's um, militias and um, Charles Taylor's army. Mm. And then sometimes they would reconstitute and sometimes they would sort of, you know, just scatter to different parts of Liberia and then take over these natural resource areas, right? So I was talking about how they operated in, in, in different parts of Liberia when they took over particular resource enclaves like a rubber plantation or a gold mining area or a diamond mining area or a timber area. Um, mm. And so when I was writing about them, the, the thing that I was thinking about was, you know, you look at these groups like in person and, and they don't necessarily look particularly dangerous. And and this is sometimes they were and, and sometimes it was less clear what they were, right? Like that part of I think what we forget 
and I'm analyzing this through the lens of somebody from the West. And um, mm. the narrative that we have about people who fight in these wars is that they, especially African ones, right, is that they are mm. entirely brutal. And once mm. you have fought in a war and killed somebody or done whatever it is that that you've done that there is no way back right that that once mm. you have done that thing that forever you are tainted and i think the story is often more um it's more complicated than that and and i think what i wasn't happy about in that narrative was that there was no the story wasn't as complicated as it needed to be, that there was no taking into account that people then had to make a living afterwards, that they could have different lives, that they could, um, you know, be miners and um, be laborers and try to make a living and then think about, well, how does the country move beyond that? That that I think when from the outside, a place like Liberia just looks like an incredibly brutal place. And that's the end of the mm -hmm. story, right? That you have all these atrocities mm. happening and that there can't be anything more after that, that the, like, it's almost like the country has, has, you know, it's just forever tainted. And, and I, I think mm. I wasn't happy about that narrative once I got to the country and, and you can see that there is a kind of, you know, people trying to make something out of something very desperate and then mm. um, thinking about, well, how does that happen and why does it happen? And it's not to excuse what what people have done um, mm. by any means. Uh, and I would be the first person to say there should be a reckoning. And mm. it's up to the Liberian people to decide what that reckoning should look like, whether they think there should be trials. Mm. Um, there was a TRC. I don't think it was wholly satisfactory for a lot of people. Mm. Um, there mm. are other ways in which people have tried to reconcile with the things that were done. Um, but the things that I was talking about in terms of, you know, the, the economic side of this was thinking about mm. in these places, the state, right? If we think about the state, the state was not necessarily a better actor, a more responsible actor a more mm. generous or caring actor it's not like the state necessarily you know the mm. government itself was doing anything for a lot of these people in these places mm. right so mm. the what are you you can't compare against a state in which this this kind of theoretical magical state where everything works and services are being provided and you know security works the police works and and everything works mm. and then compare mm. it to these groups um, some mm. of whom were, like I said, made up of, of ex-combatants, right? Um, mm. And then say, oh, well, one is good and the other is bad because that first thing that I described doesn't exist, right? Mm. A lot of times mm. the state mm. itself, mm. Um, especially under Charles Taylor, was so incredibly abusive that people mm. would rather have no state than have any version of that. And the question is, you know, in some cases, mm were some of these groups able to bring a level of stability and order so that people could actually do business. And from that, right, right I talked about the foundation um, through which you, you set, somebody is able to set some rules. And yes, maybe that mm -hmm. looks like an authoritarian version, which I'm not particularly mm -hmm. a fan of, but maybe even mm -hmm. within that space, there is more mm. give and take between the people and the person who is ruling mm. over you. And then over time, you see that there is more give and take between the community and then the people mm. who are ruling over you. And then over time, um, you know, mm. the state may be like when we get to a situation like now, many, many, mm. many years later, almost 20 years later, 20 years after the mm. end of the Civil War, 18 years after the first election, um, you start to have more accountability, right? And the accountability becomes much more meaningful. But you transition mm -hmm. out of one space and into the next. So by no means mm -hmm. um, would I ever excuse the atrocities that were done by these groups. And you can't call them warlords. You can call them sort of what you like. I think about warlords as, you know, coming to take over and wanting really to take over the country. And I thought about mm -hmm. these groups as really operating on a, small scale and not really trying to take over the country. They just wanted to do business and they needed to create 
a business environment in which they could thrive. Um, and so that's what they did. So I would say that's for me the separation between this idea of what I call these extra label mm. groups um, and these warlords. Yeah. Mm. There, there, there are very key things. You, you, I'll come to the to the state, the absence of the state and the nature of the state in a minute. But I wanted to touch on that economics, the, the economic. The, like uh, what, what I what I when I think about Liberia, I'm thinking about uh, Niger Delta in Niger, for instance, where uh, the area is uh, the oil-rich region in Nigeria, where the country had uh, to fight insurgent group uh, for, for for the longest, and then the country then gave amnesty to these uh, to thousands of these people in in two thousand and nine, and then we've had relative peace in that region. But but in that region, what I want to look at is whilst some of the criticism of that is. Uh, is that what's happened is the whether you call them warlords like you like right so you call them ex-combatants the the leaders of those groups have been rewarded or if you use the word bribed to be then the new elite to provide the state with the access to to that revenue to that oil to that resources without so what is done is is disincentivize the state from providing uh you know, doing the fundamental thing like building roads or creating those that those same conditions exist. So it disincentivizes the state uh, from from doing that. And and so what I want to look at is, should we, when you bring the spoilers, you know, into such negotiation, does it in a way disincentivize the state? Does it have a, is it counterproductive? Uh, is the state better off uh, dealing with the with the root cause of the problem? So in in Liberia, for instance. Uh, judge were lost because the people felt like you know the conditions were still the same. You know, there's poverty, there's power shortage, all these things are still there. You know, so how do you how do you look at that in, in terms of mm -hmm. like you know how do you marry how do you resolve that conflict in terms of like establishing peace by bringing in the spoilers and then addressing those fundamental needs that structural conditions that also creates those you know need for those people to to emerge well if you could answer another, that another question, tough question you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean you basically solved all of the world's conflicts michael um so, look i i you know i i think um in all seriousness that is it is it is a really really tough balance no matter where in the world you're looking at and sometimes you can see that where they get that balance wrong you end up with one situation where the country goes back to war you know you push a little bit too hard to take power away from the people who have it and then in the other case where you try to go for stability and as you would say you provide goodies right you provide bribes you provide um access to something that's very very valuable you provide them with some form of power and you give that to the people who you know i think from a normal person's perspective should never be given that kind of power given what they have done in the past and they're being rewarded for being violent right so in mm -hmm. one case you have people being placated, you have ex-combatants or former fighters or militia groups or whatever, in the case of men in the Niger Delta, being placated. Mm. And then in the other case, you have you know, this kind of rooting out of corruption, trying to take that away from them and saying, look, you know what, what you've done is absolutely unacceptable. You know, we are going to prosecute you or we are going to go after everything that you've got. And mm. in both cases, you know, you go too far down one way and too far down the other. In one case, you get um entrenched corruption which is very very mm. hard to dig out but you end up with a more peaceful situation in the other case mm. what you're risking is a real return to war and mm. the the difficulty is how do you walk the line between the point mm. where you can bring somebody in with you so that they're walking mm. along with you and they say okay it's better for me to put down my weapons at this moment and then mm. to go with you and to take a little something. And I have now an incentive now to tell all of my followers 
and to tell all of the fighters within MEND to put down their guns. And then we all get mm. something for a bit. Um, but then you have to find a way back so that it doesn't end up with entrenched corruption. And it's mm. very hard, so hard, impossibly hard to walk that mm -hmm. line. On the other side, if you say, hey, look, we're going to fight you and you can't do this. And, you know, what you want is unacceptable. And mm -hmm. then you just keep fighting and the violence continues. Right. So that's one path. That's mm -hmm. what could have happened if they didn't mm -hmm. try to bring the war to an end. And um, mm -hmm. or, you know, even if let's just say they end up in power for a while. And now the Nigerian state says, you know what, these people is not acceptable like there's too much corruption going on we're going to try mm. and change the dynamic we're going to try and change the situation here and make it less corrupt well these people now have something to lose mm. if you try and take that away from them the question is can they remobilize right mm. are they able to call up their supporters and fight again and if you think the mm. answer to that is no then you can you can try and you know take some of that power back away from them and if you think the answer is yes then mm. you know you don't do anything because you know mm. the fallout from that is going to be possibly another return to war so this is some of what we talked about in the elite bargains work um with mm. the uk stabilization mm. unit and it's mm. trying to walk that line um and it's an incredibly fine line to walk and i think a lot of countries mm. get it wrong. You know, they go for mm. stability and that completely makes sense. I think it's not just, you know, the country that gets it wrong, it's the international community mm. that gets it wrong. Um, mm. You know, you look in Afghanistan, you can see the same thing. You look in Iraq, you can sort of see the same thing that you want stability. And in order to create stability, you have to be able mm. to give people an incentive to put down their arms. And in order mm. to do that, um, oftentimes the people that you're you're placating, um, they don't want to do that unless they get something in exchange. Mm. And mm. then how mm. do you change that dynamic? It just becomes really, really, really hard. Mm. Um, so mm. that's, I think, I, the dilemma I agree, that you face. <laughs> I agree with you. You've, you know, it's a very delicate line. <laughs> and you've carefully and, you know, wisely uh, responded to that, and uh, and it, it reminds me of another guest that was here uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Professor, I don't know if you know him, uh, Shedrick the Conin, and he he he's written about adaptive peace, and he's just said exactly what you said. That uh, it's you need to use the complex theory to to approach this. So it's it's not something that you 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 impose a particular structure of peace. You have to wonder how to adapt. You have to you know want to continuously adapt to the situation. So. Um, it's going to be one that, from what you've said, it has to be one that looks at the different stages of the conflict and look at what, what can be done. At, are they at the weakened position? Should we do this and then uh, take it without popular support from the people? Because if the people don't support it, they, they might lose, you know, lose that. Um, because I think in every conflict, in most conflicts, you know, the having the people you know, supporting people, mobilization of the people is very key because whatever these fighters come from the people, from the society. So if you remove that condition that these people can capitalize on or exploit, it could, but it depends again on the stage of the conflict. But the, the, another key thing that you've said, uh, which is, you know, very central and also central to the work that I'm doing currently is the state. It does look like the, the common denominator a problem or the whole is the issue of state legitimacy in the continent. So, and that state legitimacy comes from, it's very, very wide in terms of like, is the state able to provide security for a citizen, is able to provide basic stuff. And like you said, the state is not much different from this group that are, and these groups are, you know, taking up that position of the state and acting in, the, in that capacity and challenging the state's legitimacy in that, in that state. So how do you see, but in, in the case of Liberia, Liberia has a different uh, history from most or many other African countries. I think Liberia and um, uh, Ethiopia has a very different history. So, but it still has the same symptoms 
as the other other history, other other countries as well, in terms of like the same stressors, the same. So what is it? What is it? Is there? Why? Why is that so? Considering you know, it's different tragic in terms of state uh, composition, in terms of his independence and, and why does he have to say, why does he share, what similarities does he share with other states that have different like colonialism and, you know, post-colonial states in Africa and that? And how do we, how do we so, do it? Yeah, go on. No, no, no. It's, um, it's a good question. And I think part of the answer is actually that Liberia is actually a lot more like the other states than people want to admit and maybe that Liberians want to admit because of the way we talk about Liberia having and Ethiopia being the two states that have never been colonized, formally colonized. And I would say formally is an important word here because if you look at Liberia's history, I, I think it, it pretty much looks like it has been colonized. It's just that we don't see it as clearly as, as that. Um, and it's sort of it's it's a little bit more hidden to um to the outside viewer but if you if you look at its past and how you know how it came into being it was i would say that it was colonized by the united states more or less right but it, the story is there is more complex because if you think about how liberia was founded it was quote unquote with you know freed slaves from america coming over and then taking a piece of land but they're talking about it as if that there was nobody there on that piece of land. And if you yeah. go back mm. and read the history of what happened, there were battles that were were fought over this land. Mm. And there was, mm. you know, that land was taken with a gun being pointed at the head of, um, I think it was King Long Peter at the time. Mm. And it said, you know, from the from the naval side there and guns were a new thing right this was back in the 1800s yeah. um there was a gun yeah. pointed at the chief's head and and said you know you better hand this over or else and it also yeah. came after a long period of trying multiple times up and down the gold coast the west african coast to try and find a place and and they were not given any land and they were basically sent back actually multiple times i think it yeah. was only on the third time and you know the americans for their own reasons didn't want these freed slaves right for all sorts of their own political domestic reasons and then so mm. they, this time they were backed up by the navy and they came and they took over this land and then the the difficulty was holding on to this land and that's why they you know 156 or so of them from of all ages like from children all the way up to grandmothers and grandfathers had to fight this battle and so they they celebrate yeah. it um, annually as, as part of their Independence Day, right? But, mm. you know, on on the other side of that, from the native Liberian side of that, from, you know, the existing tribes that were already there, they look at that day, mm. I, I think, very, very differently. And so, you know, the way in which people think about Liberia, even from day one of the formation mm. of that country, is really mixed it came from a place of violence for a lot of people and that's not really mm -hmm. recognized right so if you're getting the freed slaves version of this versus the native mm -hmm. liberian story about this on the mm -hmm. one side it's a story of oppression right and mm -hmm. on the other mm -hmm. side it's it's a story of a new homeland um and mm -hmm. i think the kind of if you go back and read the history of then you know subsequently the ups and downs Firestone ended up playing a very critical role. And then so did, mm. you know, several times um, the Liberian state almost went bankrupt and basically the US Senate and Firestone came in and provided a commercial out. But the quid pro quo of that exchange mm. was that the US was going to be a very powerful player in the country. And I don't think that that is as well seen because it was done through a commercial enterprise. A lot of that power, you know, Firestone was basically the money upon which the Liberian government ran on. And without yeah. Firestone, you know, it, it, like the way in which the state developed in terms of um, the formation of the frontier force was, was incredibly brutal and how it dealt mm. with native librarians was incredibly brutal so that's kind of relationship with the state if you're thinking about why does that legitimacy not exist it's because people were treated so horrendously in the past
and you have that trauma coming down, no wonder you don't trust the state, right? Who would trust the state given how your grandparents were treated, taken away and forced to work in some cases on some of these rubber plantations? Just, I think there's, you know, that, that history between how the state treated um, some of these communities is incredibly brutal. Why would you trust the state? What has the state given us, right? But the people who benefited yeah. from the state, right? The the quote unquote Congos, the yeah. you know the people who were descended from the American, the original um, American colonizers, right? The freed slaves. So that they called them originally yeah. the American Liberians, and then um, later on they started calling them for the, the Congos. Um, if the people who are associated with this class of people somewhere between, depending on who you ask and how you count it, two to maybe seven or 8% of the population, they had all of the benefits mm. from the state. So the state worked really well mm. for them. You know, they got the scholarships, mm. they lived well, and they were able to go abroad. They often had dual citizenship between America and, and Liberia, and they would move back and forth between the two worlds. So if you are mm. of that class, then life is good and for the mm. rest of the population, life isn't good. So that question about mm. what you said about the legitimacy, well, it depends on who you are within this state. Mm. For some people, mm. the state is incredibly legitimate. You have all of the power, you are the professors, you are the businessmen, you are the judges and the lawyers and the politicians in this society. And then for everybody mm. else, you're nothing, right? Um, and that's the difficulty, right? So who are you talking about having legitimacy for? Um, and and who are you within this state? So mm. yeah, this is, those are not nice, nice answers there. <laughs> but you know, if you're thinking about legitimacy, no, the, 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 right, the, the, the legitimacy yeah. is for some people and not mm. for others. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it's quite, it's quite interesting, it's intriguing where you, like Riley said, depends on who you're speaking to. It depends on who you're asking. It depends on it depends on where people are in terms of what they're benefiting from, uh, from the current, you know, from the state. People that are benefiting from the way the state is would have a different view of it. But you know, on the line in all of these things, we can we can not notice we can, you know the the violent nature of of you know, yeah, state formation exactly. in, in the continent. Exactly, and, and, that, and but, it yeah. was because. You had asked me originally about, well, you know, why did Liberia have, why doesn't Liberia have a different trajectory given that it hasn't been colonized? And my answer to mm. you was that it sort of was colonized. And, and in fact, you know, if you look at the patterns of behavior, it's just that the colonizers in this case were black. So we don't think of them as being mm. colonizers, mm. right? Mm. But they mm. did not see themselves as part of, as the same, you know, same, same mm. as we'd say in Liberia, as, mm. as the other, mm um native, liberian uh, the native yeah. liberians yeah, yeah they yeah. saw themselves as basically better than everybody else and mm. that um they they you know they dressed differently they treated themselves a class apart from the native liberians who they saw as uncivilized and so you know mm. in one case you we think about them as not it's not possible because they were black and they were freed slaves they could ever you know treat other people so horrendously but i would just what I learned out of studying Liberia so closely is mm -hmm. that, you know, you repeat the traumas that have been done unto you, that states do this and that people do this, mm -hmm. that you, if you know of a system, you tend to want to replicate that system. And they replicated the system mm -hmm. in many ways of slavery and, and having second class people, but they wanted to be the people at the top instead of the people at the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so if, back to your question, well, actually the trajectory of, of Liberia in many cases, it actually in practice has a lot of the same kinds of traumas amongst the mm. population that other countries would have experienced uh, that had colonialism, the same kinds of traumas mm. as well. And I don't think mm. that excuses, like, I think things could have gone differently. Um, and I think mm. there is always space for people to change the story of their mm. countries, um, mm. but these were some of the things that also happened to Liberia as well as in the neighboring mm. countries. Interesting. If, if I come to the last question, I know it's going to be a very tough one. 
he, 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 you know, before I say come to you, in the last let's say 15 years, we've we've seen relative peace, we've seen peaceful transition to 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 you know to power, we've seen uh successive uh transition or transfer of power uh in Liberia. I don't think we've had one person has had um uh two terms in Liberia yet since 2005. I think Ellen Johnson had uh maybe but I think she had two terms. Yeah, I think she had Ellen Johnson had two yeah. terms. Yeah, besides that, but in the last uh, from the last election we, we've not seen that um uh, but if we look at that we say okay there's been relative peace in the last coming to 20 years. So how can that peace be sustained? And you did mention something about the TRC that they tried and you know how that didn't really had that effect. But if you look at the trajectory again, if you look from this base point of this last you know relative peace, what's the future? How can can you predict the future of Liberia? Can you say? <laughs> so what would that be like? And then if you take a broad overview of the continent, you know, just as the last question, what is the prospect of sustainable peace? What does it look like? How can we achieve that in Liberia and then in the continent as well? So now you're asking me to solve African peace as well. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, well, I'll, I'll try and, and provide a somewhat humble answer by saying I really don't know how to how to solve all of Africa's um, peace and conflict issues. But uh, you know, I can make some comments about Liberia just in terms of I, I actually think Liberia has done really, really well, and I I, I just don't think we can. Um, I don't think we should take it for granted, right? So I think part of the difficulty when things go well is that people stop paying attention. And in order to continue for a place to go well, in order for a country to continue to sustain a peace that has been hard fought is to keep paying attention to it. And in the case of mm. Liberia, it's definitely having attention paid to it by both the international community and also by the United States, right? So mm. those are are the two, to a lesser extent, I would say the European Union, but really by the United States and, um, and by the UN. So as mm. long as people have an eye on that country, um, mm. and when I say an eye, I don't mean a course of eye, it just means saying, hey, look, you know, when there's a big corruption scandal, we're paying attention. Um, mm. And you sort of see this, right? The that the U.S. Treasury mm. has put sanctions on three specific people, and and part of why um, George Weah lost is because mm. of a series that of pressure. corruption yeah. scandals. Yeah, mm. right into mm. his own government, and and being accused of turning a blind eye to to those corruption scandals, right? So mm. um, from his mm. chief of staff and. Um, the Solicitor General, right? Imagine having your Solicitor General as somebody who's being accused of corruption and throwing away cases where, um, you know, in order to be for bribes to throw away the the cases that that undermines confidence in in your in judicial system. And yeah. yeah, that's very, very hard, right? So and I mean, to to be honest, like most people, weren't going to use the judicial system anyway because it's expensive. Most people can't afford it. Mm. Normal people mm. can't afford it. So mm. really only means which you actually fight something through the courts because it's expensive to do so relative to what people make. Um, and then as you can see, it's seen as, as somewhat corrupt, right? If you can actually buy your way out of a case, difficult. And that's also something that I talk about in my book, right? That when you have a system where different, there are different points of weakness uh, where people can be bribed or intimidated into changing the outcome, then that becomes a real problem of faith in, in your judicial system. And the people don't think about the courts as functioning. But maybe just as importantly, a lot of people don't have access to justice when bad things happen to them because they can't afford to go through the court system or, you know, the the police or um, the prosecution has a decision about the, the cases that they decide to prosecute. And not everybody 
will have justice done for them as a result of what the state decides. And so you end up with a system where, well, when bad things happen, what, what recourse do you have? When people feel like there is no recourse, then they start turning to other means to exact revenge or to get back the things that they feel were stolen from them. Um, and mm. so if there is a recommendation that I would make in thinking about Liberia, it is thinking about, well, how do you deal with those situations? It doesn't necessarily have to be with the courts, but normal people need mm. to be able to access some form of nonviolent, they need to have nonviolent recourse. Um, mm. And what sometimes that's done informally you know if you're in different parts of rural liberia you'll have elders or mm. chiefs try and do some of that um, but for the bigger cases the question is well how do you deal with that in a way that is peaceful if people feel like mm. they can have justice and they feel like they can have security then maybe they mm. will continue to use the ballot box and not mm. um resort to violence and mm. so far that has worked Right. So but you can see, you know, and I'll just think about South Africa here, because that's a case that I followed for a really long time, you know, watching yeah. it as a as a child and then watching how much it's, it's, it has changed. And then being in South Africa about 10 years after the end of apartheid and, and writing about it and seeing how hopeful it was and talking to people there and and now seeing how things have deteriorated, right? Mm. And how the hope that was there for a really wonderful and peaceful democratic transition where you saw more distribution um, from, you know, from white to black, frankly, mm. um, and sharing of resources and the potential for black people to be able to do well in that system, financially well, mm. politically well, um, socially, um occupying levels of status that they never dreamed of when i was a kid right when apartheid existed and now you see what has happened that doesn't happen quickly right from the age of mandela um out to um ramaphosa and so forth like that change took a long time and it happened through a slow deterioration of the institutions and a lot of mm. corruption and um, you know, a lot of people's loss of confidence in what the state was able to provide and a continued and persistent level of deep, dark violence, uh, especially in a place like Johannesburg, where that mm. kind of violence is just frightening, right? What people will do mm. to you mm. um, in order to, you know, take a car or um, to come in and, and just kill people having taken your things kill you anyway, right? Mm. That kind of violence has persisted for such a long time and the state has not been able to get a grip on it. If that kind of violence persists, you know, then then things start to fall apart over, over time. Um, you've seen this in lots of different places around the world. That's the worry, right? You don't let that kind mm. of violence take root and you have to try and even though it's painful, rooted out from the beginning. Um, mm. That's the thing that I would watch out for. And I would say, you know, paying attention to across the continent, thinking about actually how corruption works in the society. Mm. That's the thing that makes people stop believing in the system. And then this kind of violence that is happening to normal people where you have no control over it. And then the criminals are allowed to get away scot-free without any kind of retribution or able to intimidate their way out of prison or out of the courts or out of you know being dealt with or just never being caught in the first place you know that mm. that's the kind of thing that undermines faith um, and leads to political instability in the long run mm. so mm. i don't have any great mm. answers for how to deal with it no, um, that is i would just say that is that that's is what modern, you that is modern to. that is yeah, that is more than great. What you said, you know, it's more than great. And, and, and like you really say, it cuts across uh, all of the other countries as well. And, and you know, I've seen uh, similar stuff with other people I've spoken to is that fit institution and uh, the judiciary is very, very central to it. So we had another guest on the show uh, that, that mentioned the judiciary in Nigeria. I said the judiciary is the bane of 
the problem in the continent. So the judiciary is, is an important institution where people, and you've said it also, it's not just the judiciary, it's also having access to it. You know, people don't usually talk about that. If you don't have access to it, then you're frustrated and you can seek other means of, you know, seeking redress to, to you. So it's been an amazing conversation and I really, really enjoyed uh, our, our conversation, Christine. And uh, I'm grateful, uh, you know, it's early where you are in, in America and then, you know, you know, giving us this um, time and we really, really appreciate your insights. Um, you know, we thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. I'll see you back in London, Michael. Yeah, um, it's been an soon. absolute pleasure. See you soon. Um, see you soon. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Thank you viewers for tuning in today to another uh, exciting uh, episode. Uh, that is Christine. Christine is an amazing um, friend and you know, someone that's got a lot of experience studying, uh, researching, you know, Liberia and other African um, countries studying conflict. And you know, I hope you've enjoyed this um, exciting uh, video. Uh, stay tuned for another episode. See you soon. Bye. And have a Merry Christmas. <laughs>